We'll hear argument now on number 961570, 9X Corporation versus Discounting. Mr. Young. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In explaining why the Second Circuit was wrong, I'd like to focus on two legal principles. The first is that an antitrust case brought by a disappointed supplier must contain adequate allegations of harm to competition and not just harm to the competitor. And the second is that that harm to competition requirement is not met simply by an allegation that the supplier was terminated for a bad reason, even if that reason is in violation of laws other than the antitrust laws. The lower courts have repeatedly used these principles to deal efficiently and appropriately with meritless but tempting treble damage antitrust suits brought by suppliers and distributors in the lower courts. And in doing so, they have uh, been consistent with the principles of GTE Sylvania and uh, Sharp, because the, the very cost of this litigation alone, these cases go on for years, the expenses are tremendous. Uh, these, these costs are a, a tremendous chill on the right to — a purchaser's right to, to change suppliers freely, which is the, the essence of the competitive process. The Second Circuit made a substantive error. It extended group boycott law to cover a vertical non-price agreement, despite the clear requirement that a group boycott requires a horizontal agreement. Now, the Second Circuit made this error, apparently, because it confused an alleged regulatory fraud in the telephone services market, the aim of which was to raise local telephone rates, for a competitive problem. But this case has nothing to do with rivalry among providers of local telephone service. Discon, in its brief, acknowledges that. Now, apparently, because of this confusion, the Second Circuit did not even examine whether there were concrete allegations of market-wide harm to competition in the removal services market, which is the only relevant market here. So, so if costs were passed on to the consumer, that just, that's just irrelevant? Um, it's very relevant for regulatory purposes. But the, the, the question in a rule of reason analysis in the removal services market is whether or not uh, price and output and the conditions of competition in that market were changed. Well, well, it seems to me if you have a, a monopolist uh, that's, that's, the, that's the buyer and the, uh, the agreement is to eliminate all but one supplier, and if you assume that those costs are going to be passed on to the consumer, I, I don't know why that isn't part of the competitive analysis, at least under the rule of reason. The, I think the important portion that is relevant under the rule of reason, as I say, it's not whether local telephone rates were raised. There are regulatory commissions to examine those issues. The question is, what were the terms of rivalry in the removal services market? And that's, that's really where the, the Second Circuit, I think, missed the boat. It did not even examine whether or not there was harm to competition in that market. Now, the, the, one of the most on important — On that question, can suppose you — we could show the costs were passed on to the consumers uh, and that that was the, the necessary effect of this. And, and it's a rule of reason. In a rule of reason case, uh, the, judge, the Court would not admit the testimony that the costs were passed on to the consumers unnecessarily? Um, in a rule of reason case uh, — uh, Justice Kennedy, I think uh, 
that fact, the fact that costs were passed on, is irrelevant to the, the rule of reason antitrust analysis. But may I just inter- interrupt? What about the cost of removal services? What if the, the alleged conspiracy, which may or may not have existed, resulted in higher costs of removal services? That's the core of the case. And, and don't they allege that they did? The technologies bid 998000 and the plaintiff was bidding about half that amount, and they marked it up to amount still less than that. Uh, just so, I mean, haven't they alleged that the costs of removal services were artificially enhanced? No, I don't believe they have, and, and I'd like to explain why. Um, what May happened- I ask just preliminarily before you uh, make that explanation, who was in the removal business other than ATT Technology and DISCON? One picture that I have is, is a, uh, an agreement that would leave only one supplier standing, and in that case, if there were only the two in the business, it would be quite a different situation than it were just a single supplier eliminated and many still standing. So what was it? The complaint alleges at least four people, uh, four companies in the business. Um, There was Discon, there was AT&T, there was a company called LISN, which I believe is pronounced Listen, and there was an individual named McGee. All are alleged in the complaint as being in the business. Uh, actually, uh, the New York Public Service Commission, which uh, conducted a detailed inquiry into this in the, in the public record of that proceeding, um, is, is the fact that there were, in fact, a very large number of people competing in this business. To the, to the question about price and, and output, though, uh, price and output, that is, in the removal services market, that is the critical factor. But the allegation here is that New York Telephone voluntarily paid more than the market price. Uh, it's the same sort of situation as if the, uh, the procurement officer at Ninex had decided to give the money to his — to give the business to his brother-in-law and pay his brother-in-law a, an extra 20 percent. That doesn't change the market price. Well, but it, it, why doesn't if that's the, the main purchaser in the market and if the people who made the agreement — The whole thing is kind of strange, but anyway, if the people who made the agreement had for its purpose higher uh, prices for removal services, why does it matter that they were willing to pay the higher prices? Because those prices then, as just Kendi pointed out, are passed on to the ultimate consumer of telephone services. I think what matters about it is that if there is no change in the terms of rivalry in the removal services market, and and I'd like to get to, to that in a minute why I think that's true, then the fact that a buyer voluntarily pays more doesn't change the market price, doesn't change the market output. That is, that is unchanged. The, the question is, if New York Telephone decided at one point um, that it didn't want to be a part of this, uh, uh, this alleged scheme anymore, could it go into the market and get the competitive price for removal services? And it could for, I think, a very fundamental reason. This Court in Matsushita, in talking about what market power means and, and the elements of market power has indicated that barriers to entry are critical, that you can't maintain supra-competitive prices without market power, without barriers to entry. But isn't there going to be, even as, as you describe it, uh, a, a tendency to inflate price even in the event that 9X tomorrow morning or tomorrow morning uh, after the complaint was filed decided that it didn't want to pay that much because it had already demonstrated that, in fact, it would pay an inflated price. The the competitors, I will assume for the sake of argument there were three, knew that it would pay the inflated price, and therefore I assume there would be a tendency on their part to say, let's hold them to their inflated price or something like it. So the very fact that 9X may change its mind tomorrow morning 
doesn't necessarily uh, suggest that it will return to the competitive market that it had before it showed its willingness to pay the inflated price. I think the reason that it would return to the competitive price is the fact in this, in this industry um, where there are n- no barriers to entry. The complaint alleges not just that these people were in the market, but that this business can and was performed by telephone companies for themselves. Well, you may, and, and I, I realize that, so in fact there's a fifth player there, right. I, I know. Uh, but isn't the point at this stage that that is a matter uh, for litigation under a re- rule of reason analysis? In other words, the, the only point that I think I'm making is that it does not seem to be implausible as a matter of law on the allegations of the complaint that if 9X changed its mind tomorrow morning, the price would necessarily return to the, the pre-inflation competitive price. It's a, it seems to me a matter for at least for litigation. Isn't that so? No, I don't agree. Uh, and the reason I don't agree is, is the point I'm coming back to, the barriers to entry. The, uh, the original complaint, and this is the joint appendix at page 15 to 17, uh, indicates how easy and quick it was for somebody to get into this business, which is really just the first cousin of the salvage business. Um, the uh, uh, discount got into business in, in June of 1984. Um, within 30 days, it had $500,000 worth of business. Um, it had plans to ramp up its, its uh, operation here fairly dramatically. So th- I think the important point is that if there are no barriers to entry, then there is absolutely no reason to, to suspect, and a, a district court faced with this kind of complaint um, can reasonably conclude that there is no adequate allegation here of harm to competition. There is only an allegation that a purchaser voluntarily agreed to pay more than the market price. Sorry, I thought he didn't. I thought I, I mixed up perhaps, but I thought that if we call night, let's call Nitel that whole series of mm-hmm. buyers, and we'll call AT&T Tech the seller. I thought they did pay a competitive price. They paid a low price disguised as a high price. So they not only got the low price, they got an extra term. The extra term was called the term to help you chisel. So they paid some money, which was cheap, and that money plus the extra benefit, the help you chisel term, there's no reason to think that's any lower or higher, no higher than Discon's price, is it? Is there? Uh, they paid a competitive price. It yes. just happened. They paid about the same amount of money, and they also got a little kick yes. in there. Well, it is it's true. So there's no doubt about that, is there? Uh, it's a different product know. they were selling. They, 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 were, they were making a, an extraordinary offer. I'm sorry, uh, Justice Gould. They're selling a different product, so the, so the price could yeah. be higher. They're, they're right. selling a little more removal, re- removal services plus a kickback. That you, you so the price for the removal services is quite low. You, you could certainly analyze it. might have been the best price in the market, actually. So there's no doubt about that, and, but there's also no doubt, I take it, that the consumer paid more. I mean, they, they went and chiseled, mm-hmm. according to the complaint. All right, so, and were they exercising monopoly power? Of course. But, of course. So, so, I mean, I don't see there's anything, the, 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 your, the NITEL certainly exercising monopoly power. That's how it, it was able to charge a higher price to the consumer, because mm-hmm. it's a monopoly. But it was, mon- yeah. but it, I'm, excuse Go me, ahead. Uh, I, I agree that the allegation is that they were exercising monopoly power in the telephone services market. But the important point is that's not the relevant market for the analysis here. The relevant market is the removal services market. Um, there's understandably some confusion because, the, of course, the theory of the harm in this case has been very much a moving target throughout the history of this litigation. 
but uh, stripped to its essentials. You can put the monopoly, uh, the allegation about telephone services aside, because that's not the relevant market for this case. What is critical is the removal services market, where there were no barriers to entry, where it was entry was easy, and so there was no reason to think that the terms of competition were altered at all. What about the purchase of removal services as, as opposed to the sale of removal services? Was there, was there monopoly power there? In the purchase of removal services. Right. Um, well, certainly, I, I think you have to say the complaint fairly alleges that there were two principal buyers of removal services. Um, but the allegations of the complaint are focused on the, uh, on the provider side of the equation. And, and of course, here, uh, since this is, we're considering a motion to dismiss, uh, we have to take the allegations in the complaint. It's alleging a conspiracy between uh, the provider and the purchaser, right? And when such a, a conspiracy is alleged, wouldn't uh, monopoly power on the part of the purchaser be relevant? Only if there were adequate allegations that, um, that the terms of market-wide competition in the removal services market had changed. And here, there I come back to what I've, I've tried to explain before, because of the barriers to entry point, then uh, there, there shouldn't be any concern. Actually, as I understand it, there's a, there, there were two purchasers, the, uh, the exchange su uh, sub of uh, AT&T as well as the 9X sub, and the allegation is they agreed to create a monopoly in the, uh, in that the was, purchase of removal services. That was one of the allegations pressed below, that you could say that, if I understand the question correctly, that there was a conspiracy between two separate subsidiaries of 9X. Well, no, between the 9X, uh, uh, MECO or whatever it is, right. and the, the uh, AT&T subsidiary that consumed removal services in its, ex in a, in its exchange business. Yes. The, yes, there was an allegation that there was a conspiracy uh, between those two the allegation in the trial court, I think this is clear from the complaint at uh, the amended complaint at paragraphs 100 and 104. I'm sorry. I, let me get to directly to the point. The point is that the allegation below was that there was a conspiracy to make 9X the monopolist in that market. Now, the, the reason that is faulty, the reason that doesn't even meet the conspiracy test, is that 9X was not in the removal services market and had no intent to be. Isn't the complaint fairly read as indicating they wanted AT&T technologies to have all the removal business? I think the complaint is fairly read, and now I refer to paragraphs 100 and 104 of the amended complaint, where the allegation is that the power over price was to be in 9X's hands. And also, if you look at the briefs they filed in the Court of Appeals, I think it's clear that what they were alleging below, it's not the theory that the, uh, uh, the, the Second Circuit went off on, but their theory below was that it was 9X to be the monopolist. And that's why there's a fundamental problem in that theory, because 9X wasn't even in the business. That's what I meant. This is one of the things I meant when I was referring to sort of the moving target that this case has been, is move through the uh, — Move what what the, paragraph, the, again, is that, just so I — That's paragraph 100 and 104 of the amendment. Okay, thank you. Mr. Young, you're cases not treating that, this as a Cases that come up on a motion to dismiss are more apt to be moving targets than if, if, you, if, if you had gone through and, and litigated the thing and there was some sort of a factual record, I think. Um, it may not be your fault. But. Well, uh, the one thing, though, I think is clear, and that is we, we have the final theory before us. We have the allegations of the complaint before us. The allegations have the, the, the problem that I think I've described. So this is a case that is very appropriate for dismissal, just as so many of the lower courts have dealt with uh, antitrust claims that really don't allege harm to market-wide Mr. Young, that's the part that I don't understand, because it's not clear to me whether your position is there is no claim to state or 
no claim was adequately stated, that insufficient statement versus given this situation, there is no possible claim to be stated. I guess I'd answer that question this way. It is certainly true that harm to market-wide competition is not adequately alleged. Um, it is very difficult for me to see how it could have been adequately alleged in this kind of a business precisely because there are no barriers to entry. That's not to say that there, a, a plaintiff with a well-pleaded complaint might not have an, another cause of action. There might have been a breach of contract action or a fraud or a tortious interference. There could be other legal remedies for someone in discount's position. But, but antitrust law is really the, long, the wrong legal lens to look at this problem through. On that, you gave us a precise question about the Second Circuit's theory about group boycott. The Second Circuit didn't give any alternate ruling in case that was wrong. And yet you're asking us to dispose of the entire case, and that I don't understand either. If we answer your question, yes, the Second Circuit was wrong, shouldn't we then say, and now let it go back there? No, I don't believe so, because the the question presented did not use the words per se. It said group boycott. The Second Circuit, when it used that phrase, encompassed both, uh, included both alternatives, either a rule of reason or a per se analysis. So I think uh, the rule of reason analysis is, uh, is fairly included in the question presented. And as I said before, I think this Court has everything before it that it needs to, to resolve the case. The, the principles here, I think, are relatively straightforward. Um, there is no further need, I would respectfully suggest, for further percolation in the lower court. Mr. Young, you place great emphasis on the fact there are no barriers to entry yes. in the market. Assuming that's correct, is it your position that even if the people who are in the business do engage in a conspiracy to, to exclude somebody entirely and drive them out of business for all sorts of improper purposes, that could never be an antitrust violation as long as there are no barriers to entry because all of somebody will come back later because they can't succeed? The, uh, I, Justice Stevens, I think the, the, the right answer to that question is as long as what we're talking about is a vertical non-price agreement, then the appropriate analysis is the rule of reason analysis. And uh, it is, 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 as long as there genuinely are no barriers to entry, um, it, it may well be that the allegation is that people have acted for a bad reason. Uh, in terminating a supplier relationship. And the bad reason but that's in this not case is to, to, to exclude this company from the market permanently and entirely, no matter what it takes. It's perfectly all right because other people can always get back in and replace them. Because that the would never be an antitrust violation. Because the relevant question is what is the state of rivalry in the market, not whether a particular supplier goes out of business. Just getting back to the relevant market one more time, let's assume a universe in which, because of the regulatory scheme, Let's assume this. 100 percent of the removal costs are passed on to the consumer. And then you have an allegation of uh, a, a conspiracy to raise those costs uh, at, 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 at the level that we're discussing here of the, the suppliers of the removal services. Uh, what authority do I cite uh, for your proposition that the consumer price is not part of the relevant market? When I, when I write that down, what, what do I cite for that? Um, Just what I know about economics? Or? Uh, the, the, the best authorities that I would point to, I, I could not point to any authority of this Court. There are several lower Court opinions. Um, there is a Judge Posner decision that's cited in the briefs. It's the Blue Cross for Marshfield decision. And there's a First Circuit decision um, that uh, Justice Breyer wrote when he was on the First Circuit that explains the same point. I think that's the uh, — 
uh, the case with the unlikely plaintiff's name of Cartel. Um, Thank you. But those two cases, I'm sure that there are others, but those two cases have a particularly good explanation of why it is that a monopolist who raises his rates, is that is not an antitrust problem. It is, in fact, as Judge Posner explains. Regulated monopoly. Regulated monopoly, excuse me, yes. Why that is not an antitrust problem. Um, let me just talk. Can I ask, uh, I, I frankly tend to agree with you about um, what result you get when you apply the rule of reason, but I'm not sure that uh, I certainly didn't understand when I uh, uh, voted to grant uh, the uh, petition that we were talking about anything except a group boycott uh, in violation of Section 1. And, and that's a term of art. And uh, the term of art means uh, the, uh, the kind of thing that is a per se violation. Have you ever heard of a group boycott? That, would you have to call it a group boycott in, in, in order to use the rule of reason? Well, I, I think this Court in Northwest Stationers um, certainly suggested that there could be group, group boycotts that are not analyzed under a per se approach. But in terms of the question presented, plainly the Second Circuit uh, indicated meant group boycott to subsume both per se and rule of reason. But even, the, even, on, even on that reading, and I, I think you're probably right on that, uh, why still don't we send it back and see, uh, let them have a crack at whether there is a different rule of reason conceptualization that might apply? Because two reasons. First, the Court has everything in front of it. It needs to dispose of the case. It has the theory. Well, it, but we'll be disposing it if we do what you invite us to do. In effect, in the first instance, we won't be acting as a reviewing court. The, the, the second reason, which I think is, is probably the most Better important. Better reason. Is, uh, inevitably <laughs> is. Um, the second reason is that if this Court sends this back, it's, it is implicitly saying, I think, that this complaint was good enough. As we've indicated in the briefs, the lower courts have, have developed quite a practice in dealing with these disappointed supplier cases. The 12B6 motion is used. And one difficulty about remanding this case is I think it would tend to undercut that. Well, we wouldn't be saying the complaint is good enough. We, we would be saying the issue of whether the complaint is good enough on this other theory was not before us. If I might. I mean, that's what we would be saying if we sent it back. I mean, we shouldn't say that. But, uh. One more, if, if I could say one more thing before I close. I haven't really talked about the, the Section 2 conspiracy claim at any great length. I think this is covered in the briefs. The, the, the basic point is if there's no rule of reason claim, there can be no conspiracy claim. I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Young. Mr. Wallace, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Courts have not had experience with the kind of antitrust claim alleged in this case. It involves a regulatory evasion scheme to harm consumers by recovering inflated costs under a rate regulation system allowing recovery of costs by the regulated utility the kind of system of rate regulation now rapidly being superseded by competitive deregulation or by systems of rate regulation such as price caps that are designed to provide greater incentives for efficiency on the part of the regulated utility. And the allegation is of a conspiracy not just, for example, with an accountant to cook the books 
of the regulated utility, but with a supplier in an unregulated, what, what antitrust lawyers call upstream market, uh, um, the market for these removal services. And the conspiracy alleged is to monopolize that market and to exclude a competitor of that supplier of removal services uh, from that unregulated market because competition in that market would threaten the success of the scheme that allegedly involves inflated payments to that supplier followed by secret rebates. Now, we uh, agree with petitioners that this is not properly regarded as a, uh, a per se, an allegation of a per se violation of the antitrust laws. Uh, for reasons explained in our brief, basically we think the Court of Appeals got off track on that particular point uh, by not recognizing that it has to be a type of restraint that almost always tends to restrict competition and reduce output, rather than uh, that on the facts of a particular case it might be shown that the restraint has only anti-competitive effects. So we agree that it's a case for rule of reason analysis under Section 1, but we do think that petitioners' uh, argument, and particularly in their brief, is too facile in trying to make uh, uh, almost a virtue for purposes of this case out of the regulatory evasion allegations. They say that these allegations sufficiently show the motive, a motive for the conduct that's alleged, but that the effects on consumers in the utility's own market for telephone services have to be ignored entirely. Uh, um, uh, because the uh, restraint alleged is in this upstream market for removal services. But the very authority they cite correctly describing the rule of reason, this Court's decision in business electronics against sharp electronics, quoting its decision in GTE Sylvania, says that under the rule of reason, and this is the quote from both cases, the fact finder weighs all the circumstances of a case in deciding whether a restrictive practice should be prohibited as imposing an unreasonable restraint on competition. Well, that's, that's true when, when you have identified a restraint on competition. You ask yourself, you know, uh, is it worth uh, the benefits on the other side? But what is the restraint on competition here? The argument being made is that there is no restraint on competition, period. That any time 9X itself wanted to terminate this, uh, this sweetheart deal, it could, and it would have in front of it a totally competitive industry because it takes nothing to get into it. It's like, it's like demolition. As I understand it, some telephone companies don't even use uh, uh, outside people to do it. They use their employees. They say, come on, rip out this, uh, this switchboard. We don't need it anymore. Well, this argument may turn out to be one that could be substantiated even in summary judgment proceedings uh, factually, but it seems to me to rest on uh, uh, drawing too much out of some passing references in some of the allegations of the complaint. Well, I think at, he's at making a further argument, Mr. Wallace. I think he's making the argument that the allegations in the complaint are simply insufficient. 
that they have not, in fact, alleged sufficiently uh, barriers to entry. What, what's the government's response to that? Well, uh, um, we certainly would file a, a complaint, I hope, that would be clearer in its theories of what the violation is. We, the, the Second Circuit has read the complaint generously, although uh, we think that is not improper at the motion to dismiss stage. The logic of the complaint, putting the, the regulatory evasion scheme together with the allegations of uh, uh, an attempt to achieve monopoly power, uh, logically from the complaint to mask those regulatory evasions because the existence of competition by uh, a participant such as DISCON would threaten to unmask it. It, it, it uh, I mean, the petitioners like to say that this is just a, an allegation of harm to a competitor, but it was uh, the fact of the competition in that market that was the threat to the scheme. All right. So, assume assume I, I'm having trouble understanding, and the part I don't understand is I'll assume any facts you want. Now, how could it be a violation of the antitrust law? That is to say, I'm not saying it is or isn't. Uh, I am a buyer. I buy from A. When I buy from A, I haven't bought from B. I'll assume there are only two firms, A and B. So if I buy everything from A, I bought nothing from B. Goodbye, B. Now, suppose that I have a terrible motive by trying to chisel consumers. That's what they're saying here. All right? Now, either they win on that terrible motive or they lose. Suppose they lose, because that's a regulatory problem, not an antitrust problem. At that point, what facts could make out a rule of reason antitrust case? Well, in, 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 uh, it, uh, I think uh, under these allegations, the facts that could make it out would be that uh, um, they could substantiate that uh, this was a conspiracy to monopolize that no, market, those are, those are show some barrier. I'm you about facts. That is, mm -hmm. that's a, a, that's a conclusion, a legal conclusion. Yes, yes. I want to know what facts there are that if we assume this motive is a regulatory problem and not an antitrust problem, and if we assume giant anti-barrier ant entry barriers, only two firms, as tall as the Empire State Building, those entry barriers. Now, assume all that and tell me what are the facts that would then make out a violation of either Section 1 or Section 2. Facts, not legal conclusions. Well, the, the, the facts are that, um, uh, uh, as alleged, that they discriminated against this participant in the market in order to exclude him from the market, even when he was offering uh, uh, fully adequate competitive services at a more favorable price, uh, uh, th and that there were no legitimate business reasons for the decision, but it was designed to mask uh, the regulatory violation. Once that means something other than what I said I would assume, Other what than they did, I, pro I assume they bought from A for this bad reason. Now, have you added anything to that, my assumption, in what you just said? I am willing to assume that they bought from A, never bought from B, but and that, they did it for this bad reason, to chisel the consumer. Now, once I've assumed that, have you added a fact but, to that? But that and if that, so, what? That they, it's also alleged that they... Uh, conspired together 
to take steps to see to it that uh, the, the plaintiff here, the respondent, was excluded from that market because of the threat that his competitive offers would unmask the conspiracy, uh, the regulatory evasion conspiracy. The, 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 the point uh, I, I, I want to make is that once the domain of the antitrust laws has been entered, uh, because a restraint has been alleged in the unregulated upstream market, it seems to us that uh, the purpose and effect of the alleged restraint should be looked at in total, uh, just as the purpose and effect occurs in the real world. And that includes the effect on consumers in the utilities market. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. Mr. Brown, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, we're here in a situation that is like the Clores case. This is a 12B6 motion, and Clores, there was an application for summary judgment. In Clores, absolutely no pro-competitive justification was given in a group boycott context uh, by the defendants. Rather, they said they had the right to contract with whoever they the, 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 That was quite a different fact situation, was it not, Mr. Brown? Oh, Mr. Chief Justice, as I understand Clores. I mean, what, do, could you answer the question? Yes. Uh, don't, don't you think that was quite different with a number of different parties involved? Uh, I, I think that is true, Your Honor, in terms of the number of parties involved, but in terms of the structure of the violation that was being addressed, I don't believe it differs. Well, you, you need a group to make a group boycott, don't you? Well, Your Honor, as I read Northwest Stationers, uh, in terms of its description of what a uh, per se approach generally involving, a joint effort by a firm or firms to disadvantage a competitor of one of the participants in the boycott to keep them from access to a market or from certain critical components that they need to compete. In the present case, Your Honor, we have a situation where, at the time of the AT&T breakup, MECO was created. MECO is a gatekeeper, Your Honor. We've heard about entry barriers here this morning. The only way that you could sell to 9X, and I will use that in the plural, is if MECO approved you as a vendor. MECO is really an agent for 9X, was it not? I don't disagree with that, Your Honor. But to sell to New York Telephone, who was actually the ultimate purchaser, MECO was just a reseller. MECO had to approve every vendor and qualify it. Why is that any different from saying that 9X, 9X's purchasing agent had to approve every vendor? Well, Your Honor, I don't think it is different. I don't think it is different, but it has to deal — I am addressing myself to barriers to entry. In terms of barriers to entry, Your Honor, we're dealing with a situation that you could not sell to 9X, read Nitel. Without selling to 9X. I mean, I mean — <laughs> You could not sell to 9X without getting the approval of 9X's purchasing agent. That's which, true, Which is right. 9X. And in this case, well, we Why did. is this case any different? Let me put it another way. Is it your position that, that you can uh, uh, avoid a motion for summary judgment whenever you allege a, a sole purchaser? I'm the only purchaser in the industry of widgets. Nobody else uses widgets. And I enter into a requirements contract with one seller. I totally eliminate all other all other competitors selling selling widgets. Now, 
Is that enough for you to allege? No, Your Honor, and I think we've gone beyond that. What, why have you gone beyond that? First of all, Your Honor, Discon, my client, and AT&T Communications, in addition to some minor uh, vendors who I, I will deal with if Your Honor would want me to, were approved by MECO to sell to NITEL. We were both selling to NITEL. The, the analogy to an exclusive no, uh, sales I'll, I'll, cha- I'll change my hypothetical then. There used to be three people selling to this uh, sole purchaser of widgets. I'm the only company in the country that purchases widgets. I used to buy it from three people. I decide I am going to enter into a requirements contract with one of these three, which means that I won't be buying from the other two. Is that, it, does, does that allege an antitrust violation? Uh, as you put it, Your Honor, no, I don't think it does. Now, now, what have you added to that? All right, Your Honor. These things. My client, Discon, and AT&T Communications were supplying services. And these services were often bid. My client was often winning these bids. AT&T and Communications, not the parent, would speak with AT&T, the parent, and 9X and Nitel, draw those awarded contracts back. That's one example. A second example, and, and that, Your Honor, would be ignoring your bidding practices and taking a higher price with absolutely no pro-competitive or economic justification. There has never been an issue raised as the quality of my client's services or its ability to perform and deliver for the price bid. Right. I'll add to my hypothetical that the reason we entered into the requirements contract with this one supplier is that that supplier is owned by my son-in-law. Okay. I don't, I don't, I don't consider that a terribly good competitive justification, right? Would that make it a, a, an antitrust violation? Uh, I don't think that would make an antitrust violation if that was if that was a sole unilateral act, Your Honor. But if we're dealing in a Colgate context, and we're going to say, well, no, it's not unilateral. I mean, you can't make a requirements. It takes two to make a contract. I mean, I, I entered the requirements contract with the supplier. I conspired with the co- supplier to make a requirements contract. You know, I said, what if I bought all my requirements from you? And he said, yes, that's a good idea. You, you haven't stated a conspiracy to do anything to any third party as of that point in time, Your Honor. Yes, I have. I, I'm, I'm, I'm eliminating everybody else from the widget selling industry. Uh, no, you're not, Your Honor. Not, not within the context of the antitrust laws. And, and why I say what I say is, and why I use the term unilateral, if you're to go forward without any intent to damage a competitor of the person with whom you're dealing, with whom you as the widget purchaser is dealing. That's one thing. But if you enter into that agreement, Your Honor, with the intent to make sure that that competitor or the person you deal with is excluded from that market, never to return, and by that you have effected a harm on competition because you have you have restriction on output, you have restriction on price. Well, how, how have I affected a — I mean, I haven't harmed competition. That may give you a cause of action against me uh, wh- where you add to my hypothetical, not just that I want to help my son-in-law, but I — these other two companies that I'm driving out are owned by enemies of mine, and I really want to hurt them. I guess there's a cause of action for — I don't know, malicious interference with business relationships or something like that. But in order for it to be an antitrust cause of action, you have to show that there has been harm to, to competitiveness within that industry. 
How is there any harm to competitiveness? All right, Your Honor. As soon as my son-in-law leaves that company, I can immediately open it up for bids, and people will come in, and since there are no entry barriers to this particular industry, I can ask for as low a price as I want. Your Honor, my response to that would be twofold. First, the conduct in this particular case concerned the manner in which a regulatory evasion was effected. That's where the anti-competitive harm came. In the supplier market, the supplier market had to be fixed, and super competitive prices had to be enabled by the elimination of competition in the supplier market, which is unregulated. And what occurred here, Your Honor, was a series of events which, when put into operation, eliminated my client from that market. And I will go further and say this. May I ask you a rather fundamental question that cuts across the whole case? You say from that market. Yes. Now, that seems to me there are at least two different ways one might describe that market, and I want to know which one you, you say. As your opponent said, at 104, you say the market is purchases by 9X. That's one way to define it. There also, however, are two other purchasers of removal services in New York. There's AT&T-C, which you describe in paragraph 26, and there's also the Buffalo or Rochester Telephone Company. Now, are Rochester and AT&T-C in or out of the market you say was monopolized? Uh, the answer to that, Your Honor, is very simply is that Rochester Telephone is not characterizable as being in the same market if we deal with sales to 9X. This so you is do not contend that the that there was that a market which included Rochester Telephone was monopolized or restrained. You're not. Saying I, I am saying it can be read, Your Honor, at both levels. Well, no, how do you read it? You're right. the author. How, of the how, how, how I've read it, Your Honor, is that this is an attempt to monopolize a market for the provision of removal services. Yeah, I understand. The, the I'm asking you, how do you define the market? What is the market? Does it include or does it not include Rochester Telephone? It would not include Rochester Telephone. Does it include or not include AT&TC? Uh, AT&TC is uh, ATC Communications, Your Honor, is, a, is the Perhaps it's the inter-exchange network in the state yes, of at and Yes, Your Honor. Isn't and they it? use removal services, too. That's right. We, we treated that as a separate market, Your Well, as So it does not include that, that entity either. That's correct. They're separately regulated, Your Honor. So, you're, so the market we're talking about is the single purchaser of 9X? Yes. Okay. Yes. In, in responding to Justice Scalia's hypothetical with the exclusive requirements contract and the son-in-law, uh, is your answer that there is a uh, n- no actionable antitrust violation, even if the uh, supplier is a monopolist? Uh, Your Honor, if the, if the, suppl- the, the, pur- the purchaser is a monopolist. If the, if the purchaser is a monopsonist, has control. Uh, Your Honor, I think that that's, that's a, a more difficult question. Uh, the market power. That, that's not that was my question. That's not I mean, I'm sorry, I, 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 was misunder- my question. I misunderstood you then, Justice Scalia. I'm yeah. sorry? I, I think to, to make the hypothetical work, you have to assume that Justice Scalia's purchaser of the services uh, is a monopolist who then passes on the cost of the consumer. Yes. Well, I think, I think we did assume, and I assumed in my brief in this Court, that we were dealing with a monopsonist for the purchase of services in that market, which is why I was saying in, in response uh, to Justice Stevens when he asked that I was limiting to purchases by 9X for that purpose, because it would be the monopsonist in that market. It seems to me so it's a strange part of the agreement with the son-in-law and, and the purchaser is, and we'll pass this cost on to the consumer. 
That's uh, that's absolutely correct, Your Honor. That was then, then is there an antitrust violation? I believe so, Your Honor, because the, the purpose there, even though the effect may be on ratepayers, you can only affect that purpose by eliminating competition in the supplier services market. That is the only way you can make that work under the facts of this case as we pled them. The reason the per- but the reason the consumers are, are subject to the whims of a monopolist is not anything that's been done in this contract. They're subject to monopoly power because the state has made them subject to monopoly power by, by awarding a monopoly to the provider of telephone services. How can you blame the fact that they're harmed by monopoly power upon this deal? This deal hasn't created that, that monopoly power. It's, it's a creation of the state. Well, Your Honor, that, that brings about who, who really has the authority uh, as between the antitrust laws. And yeah, but, but I thought the purpose of the antitrust laws was to stop individuals from creating monopoly power. And the monopoly power that is hurting these consumers is not a creation of this deal. It's a creation of the state. That monopoly power, my response would be, Your Honor, cannot be abused in this case unless they fix the supplier markets in a manner violative of the antitrust laws. Well, there, there are regulatory — I mean, in, in awarding the monopoly, the state also supervises it. So there are, there are punishments that can be meted out by the appropriate regulatory authority. But I find it hard to see how you can blame that monopoly power upon — upon this transaction. We're, we're not attacking — we're not attacking the purchaser for being a monopsonist. We're attacking the purchaser for being, being engaged in activity upstream beyond those areas in which it can operate as a natural monopolist to fix a, and destroy competition in supplier markets. Can I ask sure. you the same question uh, that uh, I asked the Solicitor General? If through some miracle you remember it, I won't repeat it. No, if you, if you would. <laughs> all right. Thank you. Uh, all right. Right, right. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm not doubting, for present purposes, your client should have a remedy. I mean, the only issue, I think, is whether it's an antitrust remedy or a regulatory remedy, so assume that. Uh, also, I'm not going to doubt, for present purposes, that you have a big buyer, you know, put them all together, all three of them. I'm counting them as one buyer. And we have two sellers, A and B, your B. A is AT&T, all right? And I'm also not doubting that what had happened is the buyer went to the seller, your competitor, and said, I'm going to buy at a low price disguised as a high price for terrible reasons to hurt the consumer. I'm assuming all that. As a result, your client lost the business. All right, I've got those facts. I'm assuming all that in your favor. I'm assuming that your client's never going to get the business unless you can complain to the regulator and get this set aside. Now, is there — I can understand the legal issue. We have to characterize this bad reason as, is it a regulatory problem or an antitrust problem? Any additional fact? Is there any additional fact that you want to show other than what I just summarized? Because if not, I guess we could decide, yes or no. But if so, what are they? Right. What additional facts? And as far as entry barriers are concerned, I'll assume whatever entry barriers you want. Whatever you think you plausibly can prove as to lack thereof or not lack thereof. Is there any additional fact? I think, Your Honor, in response, there are probably a couple. First of all, there was just not a, a, a change of suppliers for, for uh, economic purposes at all. You, you've assumed evil motives, but I don't know if you're assuming the evil motive that creates an antitrust injury. What evil motive 
Do you, now, there, in other words, there is a human being called a manager, and we're looking into his mind. And I can see that that manager might want to cheat the consumer on your theory. I've got that one. By raising the price above what he really paid when he tells the regulator. Now, is there some additional factual set of things floating around in that person's brain? What? Uh, Your Honor, there there was a two-step approach in this case, which is specifically pled in the amended complaint. Mm -hmm. The first was uh, that prices would be charged by the competitors and they would be marked up by the manager, as you've called the manager. Mm -hmm. However, in 1985, New York Telephone said, we can't tolerate these markups anymore. Uh, You better find uh, another way to go about this. So instead, instead, Miko, which is Materials Enterprises, the manager, if you will, starts demanding that the competitors come in with supra-competitive prices. My client would not do that. My you know, I've got that. Haven't I assumed that? I've assumed that what happened was that the buyers went to your competitor and said, charge us a high price. <laughs> Give us a rebate. <laughs> that way we will, in mm-hmm. fact, cheat the consumer. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming all that in your favor. And what I'm looking for is some additional fact. Is there some additional fact in this case that you would like to try to prove? Because I, I can deal with the legal issue on the facts as I assume them. I, I did decide one way or the other. But what I'm looking for is are there some additional facts that you might prove, uh, which I don't know what they are. That's why I'm asking the right. question. I, I think, Your Honor, what the, the, the one thing, the things I would like to prove is, first of all, to compete in this market, I would not have, I would not have to exercise those efficiencies that would ordinarily be exercised for me to compete in this market and to bid. In other words, competition is being suppressed. Price is being increased. Output is being reduced. You, you, you cannot enter this market unless you enter into the scheme. Now, if the issue we're talking about, Your Honor, is, is the regulatory, as Professor Arita calls it, the regulatory remedy, as opposed to an antitrust remedy, I only suggest this, that when the Public Service Commission in the State of New York and the federal regulators kept pressing the utilities in this case, they told them. They told them to take their procurement inside the regulated businesses. And I say that because the regulators were acknowledging that they could not regulate the supplier market, that that's within the realm of antitrust. If we're talking about the remedy for my client as a competitor, the Public Service Commission, Your Honor, and the FCC cannot give my client discount incorporated any remedy for anti-competitive injury. But, you, but your client can certainly, but uh, 9X can certainly be punished by the regulatory authority, can it not? Yes, but not for antitrust violations, not for suppression of competition in the supplier market, Your Honor. No, but, but for passing on these phony prices to consumers, certainly the New York regulatory authorities could get after it. I think, I think that's accurate, Your Honor, and I think they did adjust the rate basis and they fined them, and so did the Federal Communications Commission. But that, uh, that again, doesn't address the antitrust issues. And, in fact, in this industry, the FCC has acknowledged that this industry, in terms of antitrust, from the times of the AT&T breakup case forward, and there are a number of uh, Circuit Court of Appeals cases on this acknowledging that the existence of regulation in and of itself is not an excuse for not applying the antitrust laws uh, because the regulation does not address 
antitrust violations. They're dealing with natural monopolists. I think I, I had said in my brief and acknowledged that point. Mr. Brown, uh, may I suggest something that maybe you, you, you were adding to the hypothetical that uh, Justice Stevens, uh, uh, that, that uh, uh, Justice Breyer proposes? It, it seems to me it is a part of your case that uh, not only was there this scam in which uh, um, I was going to give all of my business to you and get a kickback, but you allege it was an essential part of the scam that everybody else be driven out of the industry. Ultimately, that every if, if, that, if you were unsuccessful in driving everybody else out, the scam would be disclosed. It would be apparent that you're paying much more to, uh, to the person that's giving you the kickback than you have to pay for these services. I, I guess that's an additional allegation that you make here. Yes, that's a, yes it is, Your Honor. Could you explain one allegation? You, a couple places in the complaint, you say they had uh, threatened to discredit DISCON with the uh, regulatory agencies. I, I don't quite understand that because I didn't understand that you, you were subject to regulation. No, Your Honor. What, where this was occurring is my client was an intervener in hearings before the New York State Public Service Commission. And New York tells internal security, and, and there's a mention of it, had tried to establish that my client was involved in payment of certain personnel within the 9X group to ensure would get business. Uh, how that ties in, in terms of the allegation, is there is a later allegation in the complaint, Your Honor, that later MECO personnel came to the principal of my client and said, if you will return all evidence of discrimination and you will agree to cooperate with this scam, We'll let you provide services again to 9X. I realize they're located in, in separate parts of the complaint, but that is more a function of chronology and time than it is a lack of a tie. What are, what are you going, what do you intend to show? Any, again, facts. I'm back to facts. What, what do you intend to show? Uh, uh, if you want to, you're going to show that the buyer bought only from the seller who would impose this unfair condition. Understand you're going to show that. Once you've shown that, what do you intend to show extra to uh, demonstrate what Justice Scalia just said? Uh, I mean, does, does, your, does your claim that, that uh, well, really what the buyer was doing here is it wanted to exclude all the other competitors of the sellers, does that come down to a claim that, yes, he just bought from A all the time? But, but is there something extra? Yes, the purpose, is, the purpose is to buy from A only to discipline B. And what do you, I mean, do you have any fact at all that's going to show that other, from, other than the fact that what the buyer did was always buy from A? Oh, yes, Your Honor. They're what? They're, 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 pl they're pledging the complaint. Well, look, uh, uh, winning on bids, which then when AT&T Communications went in with a higher bid, it would, it would, the bid would be retracted and awarded to AT Communications without any further notice to my client. That's only one example. Well, is the fact that they disqualified your client from bidding, perhaps, an, an, an answer to the question? They, In other words, they didn't just say, I'm going to buy from A. They said, B, you cannot even bid anymore. We are excluding you from that possibility. Is that enough as an additional fact? Uh, Your Honor, I believe that's another additional fact. I believe it would show that they did not intend 
to comply with their own bidding procedures, that they, in fact, were acting against their own best interests. How, how is that any different from the hypothesis of a re- requirements contract? It has the same effect on your client. Whether we say, whether uh, 9X says, I'm going to have a requirements contract and buy all my stuff from X, or if they say, I won't have, have you bidding anymore, the result in each case is you get nothing. Well, Your Honor, I think I, think I can answer that two ways. First of all, the reason they entered into the agreements with AT Communications was because AT Communications would assist them in the regulatory evasion scheme in the administratively controlled area of the natural monopoly. They could pass through the cost and damage consumers by controlling the unregulated supplier market. That was the motive for entering into that exclusive requirements contract, if, you, if we call it that, at that point in time. But I asked you, what's the difference between a requirements contract and the statement to your client, we won't even have you bid? All right. Uh, your Honor, the reason my client was forbidden, assuming, assuming I'm not limited by the hypothetical precisely, the reason my client was forbidden to bid further was it because it would not charge super competitive prices and wanted to compete and was in direct communication with Nitel which was found out and was forbidden, and then they decertified my client from bidding. Thank you, Mr. Brown. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Young, you have two minutes remaining. Mr. Chief Justice, I, I don't want to impose on the Court. I think I've made the points. I wouldn't I'd like impose to on the Court if you answered one question for me. Certainly. <laughs> Why when I? your opponent kept referring to AT&T Communications, was he really referring to AT&T Technologies? I get a little mixed up with the subsidiaries here. Um, the, the AT&T, com- AT&T Technologies is the one — the AT&T sub that was the — that actually provided the removal services. I believe it? that's correct. And so when he said communications, he meant technologies. Um, at one point, I think, when he was talking about purchasers, he referred to AT&T communications uh, as a purchaser. That would have been this AT&T-C that I was referring that's to right. earlier. Right. That's right. Do you also read the complaint the way he does just — well, I guess you do, because you pointed out that paragraph of the complaint. The only market we're concerned about is the market uh, purchases by um, New York Telephone. There are actually, I think, two markets alleged. One is a New York statewide uh, market, and one is a New York telephone market. But again, as I said, I think that the barriers to entry point is, is dispositive. Right. Thank you, Mr. Young. The case is submitted.